Good morning, Novation Church. My name is Kristen Diebel, and my husband Joel and I oversee the home group ministry here at Novation. And about a month ago, I posted something in our TND Facebook group. If you're not familiar with the TND Facebook group, it's our spiritual growth platform hosted on Facebook. So if you're not part of that, log into Facebook and search TND Novation, and you can request to join. It's really a great group. We have lots of resources on there, and um, it's just a good place to encourage each other and engage as we follow Jesus. But anyway, I wrote a post for the TND group, and Scott asked me if I would just expand on that a little bit today. So that's what I'm going to do. We're going to be in the book of Philippians. We're going to be in chapter four, and we're just going to talk about how we can live right side up in an upside down world. I don't know about you guys, but when I rang in 2020 with some friends and our family, I was excited and hopeful. I love new beginnings. I love goal setting. It wasn't only the start of a new year, but a new decade. And I was headed into it with high expectations. But 2020 has definitely thrown us some real curveballs. We've had natural disasters, the bushfires in um, Australia. There's been floods. There's been tornadoes. We're obviously in the midst of a global pandemic and health crisis. There's been huge economic fallout because of that. And we have unprecedented numbers of people seeking unemployment. Um, our stock market has, has been hit hard. This is, there's just been a lot of fallout economically because of the health crisis that we're, that we're facing. And we're also living, at least here in America, in a time of such political division. There's so many riots and um, racial inequalities that are being brought to the surface. There's so many issues where we see these protests that begin peacefully but turn violent and there's looting and there's fear and there's uncertainty. It's a chaotic world right now. And not only our collective experience in the world right now, but I know individually, we, we just go through times where there's relational struggles or health struggles or financial worries or just the hard things of life that come um, as, we, as we are walking through this season. And so I think now is the perfect time to be looking at Philippians, to be looking at what God's word tells us about how we can navigate through these circumstances. So before we jump in, I just want to give you a little bit of background about the book of Philippians. If you would like to read about how that church was actually founded, you can go to Acts 16 and you can read about Paul's second missionary journey where he established the church in Philippi. This was actually the first church in um, Eastern Europe. And Paul is writing this letter to the Philippians probably about 10 years after that church was established. We know that Paul is writing from prison. Most likely he is imprisoned in Rome when he's writing this letter. So Paul's, Paul's dealing with some real hardship. He, it's clear in the letter he doesn't know if he's going to be released or if he's going to be executed. He has been beaten he has been imprisoned, he has been persecuted, and he's writing this letter to the Philippians as kind of a thank you note. Oftentimes when we look at Paul's letters that he writes to individual churches, Paul is writing to correct some bad theology or to deal with an issue in the church or to help the church be aware of some false teaching that's going on, something like that. But this letter is different. Paul is actually writing to say thank you because the Philippian church sent Epaphroditus to Paul in prison to send supplies to him, to support him financially. 
And we see throughout the letter of Philippians that this was not the first time they'd done this. This church had been faithful to pray for Paul and to support him financially um, over the course of the last probably 10 years. So this is a really unique letter. And that Paul, you can see his great love that he has for this church. He's giving them an update about his life and what's going on with him. He's thanking them for their faithfulness to him. And so um, as we go into looking at this chapter, remember that Paul is writing from a place of hardship. And so the Philippians are receiving this letter also from a place of hardship. We know that they faced persecution. They faced opposition. Philippi was a Roman colony, and there was a real sense of national patriotism. And when the church was preaching about a different king, there was definitely some opposition and persecution that came their way because of that. We know that they dealt with poverty. We know that they dealt with inner uh, church uh, relational struggles. So neither of these people, neither Paul nor the people he's writing to, are in like just an easy, happy place. So that, that speaks to us right now because I know I'm not in an easy, happy place. And most of us uh, would probably say the same. So let's jump in. We're going to pick up in Philippians 4. We're going to start in verse 4 and go all the way through verse 13. Always be full of joy in the Lord. I say it again, rejoice. Let everyone see that you are considerate in all you do. Remember, the Lord is coming soon. Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank him for all he has done. Then you will experience God's peace, which, which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. And now, dear brothers and sisters, one final thing. Fix your thoughts on what is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable. Think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. Keep putting into practice all you learned and received from me, everything you heard from me and saw me doing. Then the God of peace will be with you. How I praise the Lord that you were concerned about me again. I know that you have always been concerned for me, but you didn't have the chance to help me. Not that I was ever in need, for I have learned how to be content with whatever I have. I know how to live on almost nothing or with everything. I have learned the secret of living in every situation, whether it is with a full stomach or empty, with plenty or little. For I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. So what I want to do is I want us to take that passage of scripture and just pull it apart and look at how we can navigate this upside down world based on what Paul is telling the Philippians here. So we're going to start in verse four. Paul says, always be full of joy in the Lord. I say it again, rejoice. The first thing that we can do is we can pursue joy. Now we know that joy and happiness are not the same thing. Happiness is based on our circumstances and our emotions. And of course, it doesn't make sense to look at what's happening in our world right now and feel happy about all of it, right? But we can have joy despite our circumstances. But how? Like, what is joy? What does that look like? Well, I would say three things. First of all, joy is a fruit of the Spirit. In Galatians 5, and 23, we have a whole list of nine different spiritual fruits that develop in our lives as we follow Jesus. It says, but the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Scott did a, a series not too long ago called Mirrors, where every week he looked at one of these nine fruits of the Spirit, 
If you missed that, it's definitely worth going back and taking a listen. But what we talked about throughout that series was that all of us are image bearers of God, but sin distorts our image and our ability to reflect the goodness of God out into the world. But as we follow Jesus, that image is being restored. So joy is produced in us as we follow Jesus. It is a spiritual fruit. The next thing that we see is that joy is found in God's presence. Psalm 1611 says, you make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. Joy is found in the presence of God. So we need to position ourselves to engage with his presence. Now, I want to make a distinction here because God is always with us. It, we can never leave the presence of God. Romans talks about how there's no, no height or depth. There's no, not angels, not demons. Nothing can separate us from God's love. But when we turn our focus away from his presence, then we may not be experiencing it, not because God has gone somewhere, but because we are not positioning ourselves to engage in God's presence. I think both of these two things, that joy is a fruit of the spirit and that it's found in God's presence can really be wrapped up in understanding joy as a byproduct of abiding in Jesus. I love John chapter 15. Jesus paints this word picture of the vine and the branches. He talks about himself as the vine and us as the branches. And apart from the vine, we can do nothing. We can't bear fruit. We can't, we can't thrive. We can't do anything. But when we're connected to the vine, when we're connected to Jesus, then bearing fruit is actually just a natural byproduct of that. So the way that we bear fruit, the way that we pursue joy and experience God's presence is by staying connected to Jesus. We're going to move to verse six here. The next thing that we can do if we want to navigate through this chaotic time that we're living through is we need to pray about everything. Listen to what verse six and seven say. It says, don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank him for all he has done. Then you will experience God's peace, which, which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. I want prayer to be my first response. Whatever I'm going through, I want to pray about everything and I want to do it first. You know, about a month ago, my mom got really, really sick and my, my dad took her to the hospital and she was in the emergency room and they determined that they needed to admit her to the hospital. But because of COVID-19 and all of the safety precautions that are in place, once my mom had to be admitted to the hospital, my dad couldn't be with her. None of us could visit her. And so we were trying to get information, you know, from the doctors, but sometimes we would call and miss the doctor having been in her room. And it was really um, very anxiety producing because I had no control over the situation. I couldn't get the information that I needed. Um, my mom ended up having a really bad kidney infection. And because like 40% of your blood filters through your kidneys, um, my mom ended up becoming septic. The infection got into her blood, which can be very dangerous. So as this is all unfolding, I'm like texting my dad and calling my siblings and I'm Googling sepsis and survival rates and just really freaking out. And my husband, Joel, was at work. So I called Joel and I'm just bawling by the time I called him and I'm telling him what's going on and being the good husband that he is, he stepped out of 
of the meeting that he was in. And he said, you know what, babe, let me just pray for you. And we paused and Joel prayed and I got off the phone with him and I just thought, gosh, like that was the first moment that I stopped to pray. I was so caught up in the anxiety and the uncertainty that I forgot to to just pray before I did anything else. And there's lots of grace for that. I'm sure you've experienced similar things, but as I continue growing, I hope that prayer becomes my first response always. When we pray, we've got to be brutally honest with God. I love the second part of verse six that says, tell God what you need. Say, say what's real, name what's hard. I know for me, sometimes the reason I don't do this is because saying my fear or my doubt or my hurt or my anger out loud, like really identifying it makes it more real to me. But God already knows my heart. God understands my emotions better than I do. And so when we name the thing that we're struggling with, when we name it and lay it before God, then that's where we get to the second part of this verse, to verse seven. Then we experience God's peace. His peace comes on the heels of us laying it down before him and being honest with him. And then lastly on this point, I think this might even be the most important part. We have to believe when we pray, we have to believe that God hears us, that God answers us, that he is for us. Listen to these verses out of 1 John 5. This is 14 and 15. This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. What a beautiful encouragement to come before God with all of our needs, all of our feelings, all of our fears. He hears us. There's a quote by Tim Keller that I just love that says, we can be sure that our prayers are answered precisely in the way we would want them to be answered if we knew everything God knows. How many times have I prayed for something and I haven't gotten the answer I asked for? Of course that has happened. But what this um, quote from, from Dr. Keller reminds me of is that I don't see the whole picture. I don't know everything that God knows, but here's what I do know. God is good. God is faithful. God is sovereign. God works everything together for the good of those who love him. I can count on him. I can believe that when I come before him in prayer, he hears me, he is for me, and he is responding to me exactly the way I would ask him to if I knew what he knows. All right, next, we're going to jump down to verse 8. We're going to talk about disciplining our mind. If we want to navigate this life, if we want to live right side up in an upside down world, we must discipline our minds. Verse 8 says, and now, dear brothers and sisters, one final thing. Fix your thoughts on what is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable. Think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. When my kids were little, one of our, one of our kids got really scared of just different things. He was really scared of Cruella for a while. And uh, just easily he would see something and it would create fear in him. And at Halloween, we, had, we lived in a neighborhood that went all out. And some houses had like, extreme Halloween decorations in their yard. So what we talked about with our son was that he could guard his gates. That's what we called it. We said, guard your gates. So as we were out walking, if he saw something that scared him, he learned to physically cover his eyes 
or to use his hands like blinders, he would put his hands like this and look for us. He would find me or Joel, and then we would direct his gaze away from whatever the scary thing was. That's what we need to do. We can discipline our minds in the same way. We can guard our gates in the same way. As we develop a gospel view of life, this becomes more and more habitual for us. It's kind of like a, uh, a Play-Doh. Do you remember those little Play-Doh toys where you could stuff the Play-Doh in and then you push the lever down and out comes the Play-Doh in whatever shape the, the little toy had? So it would be like a heart or spaghetti or whatever. That's what we do with our thoughts and our experiences and our feelings, what we're reading, what we're seeing, what we're processing all around us. We press it through the gospel and allow that to be our lens to help us determine reality. This is how we discipline our mind. And spiritual transformation really begins here. It's so easy to try to start on the outside to try to modify our behavior or change the symptoms that we can see on the outside. We do this as parents too, I think. When what we actually need to do is get to the heart issue. We've got to remember that spiritual transformation starts inside. Romans 12:2 says, "Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be trans- transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will." So as we discipline our minds, as we allow God to transform our thinking, then we will begin seeing all of life through the lens of the gospel, and we will be able to understand God's will, and we will be able to understand how we can navigate through what feels very chaotic and very difficult without losing our footing, without losing our hope. The last thing that I want to talk about in this set of verses comes from Philippians 4, verse 11 through 13. Paul is calling us to practice contentment. We're going to read these verses, and then we're going to talk about it a little bit more. Paul says, not that I was ever in need, for I have learned how to be content with whatever I have. I know how to live on almost nothing or with everything. I have learned the secret of living in every situation, whether it is with a full stomach or empty, with plenty or little, for I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. I think that Philippians 4.13 is probably one of the most misused verses in the Bible. My son actually has a wall plaque with like a football theme on it with this verse on it. And I have seen uh, players, you know, put in eye black, like 413 underneath their eyes. And I I almost feel like we use this verse like a genie in the bottle. We say, okay, I'm going to achieve this thing. I'm going to start this business. I'm going to run this race. I'm going to accomplish this thing. And then we tack on at the end. Oh, and I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Like, Jesus is just a genie in the bottle who's going to pop out and, and let whatever we touch be successful, right? That is not what Paul is saying here. Paul is saying, like, look, I have learned the secret of contentment. I have been broken and beaten and bloody and hungry and impoverished and uncertain about the future. But guess what? I have learned how to live in all of those circumstances because I believe that Jesus gives me strength to do everything I need to do. That's a very different story. And that brings a lot of encouragement to us right now because we're living in a time where we have tons of uncertainty. We're living in a time, both corporately, what's going on in our world, and I know so many people working through individual and family struggles. We need contentment in the midst of that. 
when we start falling into discontentment, when we start catching ourselves comparing or feeling really angry or put upon or frustrated, like life is unfair, when we catch that happening, we can stop in our tracks, kind of actually pop back over to what we were just talking about. We can discipline our minds to turn to Jesus, thank him for who he is, for what he's done, focus on that, and allow our discontentment to kind of seep away and allow Jesus to help remind us why we can be content. And one of the reasons that we can live in contentment, no matter our circumstances, is because we can remember our eternal reality. Scott says all the time, this isn't heaven. This life is not heaven. Jesus told us, he said, in this world, you are going to have troubles of many kinds, but take heart for I have overcome the world. We become discontent when we get that flipped around. When we expect life to be easy, when we expect things to just work out for us the way that we hope they would, and then they don't, of course we become discontent. But when our focus is actually on eternity, when we remember the true story that this life is in heaven, we are going to have struggles in this life. But, but God has something so much better for us. 2 Corinthians 4.17 says, For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. This life isn't heaven. But what we're waiting for is so much better than we could ever imagine. So when discontentment starts to seep in, remember where you're going. Remember what Jesus has promised about what's to come. We can't even imagine it. We can't wrap our minds around it. But it's coming. Lastly, if we want to live in contentment, even in the midst of chaos, we have to recognize the incomparable value of Jesus. Paul understood this. He was beginning to grasp this. The chapter before, in, in chapter 3, verse 8, Paul said, What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. Paul got it. The incomparable worthiness of Jesus is what allows us to walk in contentment and confidence. Jesus is so much better than we imagine. His goodness and his love and his power is so much more than we wrap our minds around. And when we begin like Paul to say, I count it all as lost. It's all garbage compared to knowing Jesus. We'll be content because nothing can, we, nothing can cause us to lose Jesus. Or a better way to say that is nothing will cause Jesus to lose us. Everything else might be taken away, but we can count on Jesus. He will never, ever disappoint us. He will never forsake us. He will never leave us. I think if I can leave you with one encouragement of everything that we've talked about today, it's this. I love a formula. I love to be able to follow A, B, C, and D and know that out's going to pop this ability to move through a upside down world, staying right side up. I would love that. But here's the thing. The reality of life is that it's really messy and it's complicated and it's broken and it's hard. And we can't just follow the steps and out pops the right outcome. That's not how it works. But when we can grasp the goodness of Jesus, how big his love is, how all-consuming it is, 
how powerful he is, that he holds the whole world together. Everything in it is for him and it's held together by him. When we begin to wrap our minds around that, when it's not just some list of do's and don'ts, it's not just scripture that we've memorized, but it's the living son of God that we are experiencing, that we are clinging to, that we are putting all of our hope in. As we lean into that, we will be able to navigate this life, this upside down world without losing hope, without losing heart, without becoming discouraged and discontent. And that's what I want for us. So church family, as you head into the week ahead, whatever it holds, I just encourage you to press into Jesus like you never have before. Enter into his presence, study his promises, come to know the living son of God and allow him to fill you with hope and with confidence for what's ahead. I'm going to pray for us. God, thank you for just all the the people that are watching, the groups that are meeting um, around our city. Thank you for sustaining us in the middle of what has felt like so much uncertainty and so much chaos. And I just want to magnify your name this morning. I just want to declare that you are all powerful and all good. Jesus, that you have done everything that needed to be done for us to know you, to walk in communion with you, and to experience the power of the gospel. I pray that for each one of us, that we would continue to move deeper and deeper into that relationship with you, that you really would become our everything. Just like Paul, that everything else we would count as loss compared to the worthiness of knowing you. In Jesus' name, amen.